Hello and welcome. This is Melissa Giles, Portfolio Manager with Americana Partners. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. I'll be reviewing the May market commentary provided by David M. Darst, Chief Investment Officer with Americana Partners. If you'd like a full copy of the report, please visit our website at www.americanapartners.com and request to join our distribution list. The first section I will be covering is called Where We Are. Please note that any charts or graphics referenced are available by request through our website. Let's begin. Named by the Romans for the Greek goddess of fertility, Maya, daughter of Atlas and mother by Zeus of Hermes, the month of May, in Latin, Maius, has evolved through the centuries to represent the continuation of vernal rebirth and new beginnings. An apt naming with equities, fixed income securities, currencies, and alternative assets now attempting to identify meaningful price-determining catalysts for the summer months and beyond. As shown in the table provided in the original commentary, on a year-to-date basis through the end of April, the S&P 500 index has risen smartly three months in a row and was up positive 11.3%. The Nasdaq Composite has gained positive 8.3%, enjoying its strongest month of the year as 10-year U.S. Treasury interest rates in April halted their rapid rise of late February-mid-March and have more recently stayed within a relatively narrow range. And, The Russell 2000 Index of Small and Mid-Cap Companies has advanced positive 14.8%. With financial asset prices already reflecting a fair amount of the constructive news flow relating to monetary stimulus, fiscal spending, economic growth and vaccination progress, liquidity, and corporate profits, the following section discusses how these factors might be expected to exert influence on asset prices in the period ahead. Now let's discuss intermediate-term influences on financial asset prices. Monetary stimulus. As expressed in numerous speeches by the Federal Reserve Board governors and statements by the Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC, their monetary policy actions, quantitative easing and ultra-low interest rates, are going to be influenced by labor market conditions and by the course of consumer price inflation. On May 3rd, New York Fed President John Williams indicated that recent data are not nearly enough to warrant a policy change now. At this time, we recommend paying close attention to 1. The potential likelihood of the Fed's tapering the pace of quantitative easing, perhaps mentioned as a year-end 2021 possibility in the policy statement following the upcoming June 15th-16th FOMC meeting, and toward the end of the year, Two, the possibility of more explicit statements from the Fed about the timing and pace of allowing policy interest rates to rise somewhat. In our opinion, interest rates are likely to trace a gradually rising path as the economic recovery builds momentum in coming months. With the nation's central bankers' rhetoric and actions poised to respond to perceptions of how transitory or persistent inflation trends turn out to be, The Fed wants to ensure that the economy does not overheat and set in motion inflationary forces that the central bank then would have to counteract with more aggressive-than-planned policy tightening. We therefore believe investors should expect some degree of financial asset price volatility in response to the vicissitudes of inflation trends and labor market data in the coming months. Now let's discuss fiscal spending. The chart provided in the original commentary summarizes the dollar spending amounts expressed in 2020 dollars and percentages of U.S. GDP of the already passed as well as the proposed federal government fiscal stimulus bills. We accept the positive economic growth implications of this announced additional fiscal stimulus, at the same time hastening to point out that 1. 
the actual impact of these massive programs is likely to be determined by the economic multiplier effect of specific spending initiatives, as well as by the offsetting force of any tax increases that are legislated to partially pay for these outlays, and two, recognizing the imprecision of estimates in an oscillating political climate. Given the slim party majorities in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, the ambitious amounts of the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan, AFP, and the $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan, AJP, are likely to be trimmed considerably. According to Barron's May 10, 2021, by perhaps 40% or more for the AFP to the neighborhood of $1 trillion, and by 25% or more for the AJP to $1.7 trillion. Now let's discuss economic growth and vaccines progress. Based on one, strong ADP private sector payrolls data, two, recently declining weekly jobs claims numbers, and three, likely exaggerated downward seasonal adjustment algorithms, we believe that April employment growth was actually stronger than the positive 266,000 jobs report, following the negative 3.4% contraction in 2020 U.S. real GDP. The Federal Reserve Open Market Committee raised its earlier positive 4.5% estimate of 2021 real GDP growth to positive 6.5% as of March 17th, with positive 3.3% real GDP growth forecast for 2022. As of April 6th, the International Monetary Fund forecast called for a positive 6.4% real growth rate for the United States economy in 2021. According to USA Facts, as of May 8th, at least 151.3 million people, 46% of the entire population, had received at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine, and 103.8 million people, 31% of the whole population, had been fully vaccinated. Combining these totals with the Centers for Disease Prevention and Control's estimated 17 to 18% of the U.S. population estimated to have antibodies, plus the current 1.5 million vaccinations per day rate for individuals getting the first vaccination, will allow for the continued reopening of businesses, schools, public assembly, and travel. Now let's discuss liquidity. The Oxford Economics Consultancy calculates that over the course of the pandemic crisis, U.S. households have saved $1.6 trillion more than they would have if the pandemic had not occurred, further estimating that the top two income quintiles in the U.S. own more than 80% of this extra liquidity. The consultancy projects that some significant part of the government's 2021 stimulus initiatives will more broadly augment household disposable income by $1 trillion or more, with unemployment benefits and relief checks bolstering the spending power of lower- and middle-income families. Now let's discuss corporate profits. Our constructive view of U.S. equities prices is based on securities analysts' continued upgrades to their revenue and earnings forecasts. As of May 7th, according to FactSet, building upon companies' reports of surprisingly solid S&P 500 year-over-year revenue gains of positive 3.2% and earnings gains of positive 3.9% in fourth quarter 2020 thus producing a full-year 2020 decline in S&P 500 revenue of negative 0.8% and a decline in earnings of negative 11.2%. The bottom-up analyst's outlook is projected as follows. For first quarter 2021, revenue growth of positive 10% and earnings growth of positive 49.4%. For second quarter 2021, revenue growth of positive 18.7% and earnings growth of positive 59.5%. For third quarter 2021, revenue growth of positive 11.4% and earnings growth of positive 22.7%. For fourth quarter 2021, 
revenue growth of positive 8.6%, and earnings growth of positive 16.7%. And for full year 2021, revenue growth of positive 11.5%, and earnings growth of positive 32.9%. Even though these constructive forecasts are already reflected in elevated equity market valuations against a 2021 backdrop of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and economic growth, it is entirely feasible for even these generous revenue and profit estimates to be surpassed. FactSet's bottom-up 12-month target price for the S&P 500 is 4,705.99 positive 11.2% above its May 7th closing level of 4,232.60. At a sector level, the technology-intensive IT, positive 18.3%, and communication services, positive 16.3% sectors, are expected to see the largest price increases, as these sectors are projected to have the largest upside differences between bottom-up target prices and the closing price. On the other hand, the materials, positive 3.0%, and financials, positive 4.1% sectors, are expected to see the smallest price increases, as these sectors have the smallest upside differences between bottom-up target prices and the closing price. According to Bank of America, roughly negative 5.0% U.S. equity sell-off occurs on average three times a year. Such a correction has not occurred in the past six months. And a roughly negative 10.0% correction takes place at least once a year. This has not transpired in the past 14 months, as discussed further in portfolio positioning. In the final section of this commentary, we provide investors with thoughts on being strategically and tactically equipped for and prepared to take advantage of such retrenchments. In the following sections, we will discuss 1. The outlook for the U.S. dollar. 2. Valuation considerations relating to high-yield bonds and commodities. And 3. Longer-term perspective on most highly capitalized global equities on margin balances and on a 196-year look at annual U.S. equity performance. Now let's discuss the U.S. dollar. The outlook for the U.S. dollar. We believe that U.S. dollar depreciation is likely in the next several quarters, as long as it is gradual and does not accelerate to such a degree that it sparks significant financial asset price turbulence. Such a path for the nation's currency should, one, boost American exports, two, increase the price of imports, imported inflation, three, augment the U.S. dollar accounting value of American firms' corporate profits earned in strong currency countries, and four, likely provided tailwind to the price of precious metals and their associated mining companies. Created in 1973 by the Federal Reserve Board and since 1985 managed by the ICE Futures U.S. Exchange, the DXY index depicted in the chart provided in the original commentary began at a level of 100 and measures the percentage change in the dollar's value versus a weighted geometric mean basket of six currencies, consisting of 57.6% euro, several European currencies were subsumed by the euro at the beginning of 1999, 13.6% Japanese yen, 11.9% British pound, 9.1% Canadian dollar, 4.2% Swedish krona, and 3.6% Swiss franc. The all-time intraday high for the DXY index was 163.83, reached on March 5, 1985, and the all-time intraday low was 71.58, reached on April 22, 2008. According to the Wall Street Journal, the percentage changes of the DXY index have been as follows for each calendar year from 2010 through 2020. 2010, positive 1.3%. 2011, positive 1.6%. 2012, 
negative 0.5%. 2013, positive 0.3%. 2014, positive 12.8%. 2015, positive 9.3%. 2016, positive 3.6%. 2017, negative 9.9%. 2018, positive 4.4%. 2019, positive 0.4%. 2020, negative 3.4%. We are of the opinion that the U.S. dollar index following its multi-year strength won in the late 1970s and early 1980s the Reagan and Volcker dollar, two, in the late 1990s the internet and dot-com dollar, three, in the latter half of 2010-2020 decade the shale drilling dollar, and positive 1.5% year-to-date through April 30, the post-pandemic dollar, is likely to add to its negative 8.0% decline from its early 2020 pandemic strength and exhibit weakness for the remainder of this year owing to the five Ds. One, debt. U.S. government debt reached 129.1% of GDP at the end of 2020, likely exerting downward pressure on the nation's long-term growth potential. 2. Deterrence New regulatory and taxation regimes, currently under executive branch and legislative consideration, may reduce the perceived attractiveness and actual level of foreigners' inbound direct and portfolio investment flows. 3. Deficits Because of the extra dollars that through America's large gap between imports and exports end up in foreigners' hands and often sold for other currencies, the U.S. dollar has tended in the past to exhibit weakness in the wake of large current account deficits. And in 2020, the U.S. current account account deficit increased sharply to $647 billion from $480 billion, the highest since 2008 and equivalent to 3.1% of GDP. In addition, following a record U.S. government deficit of $3.1 trillion in fiscal 2020 and giving Congressional Budget Office projections of a federal budget deficit of $2.3 trillion in fiscal 2021, even without as much as $2 trillion in additional proposed infrastructure spending, such fiscal policy largesse beyond what is necessary to close the nation's output gap and financial profligacy may reduce foreigners' impressions of U.S. fiscal discipline and creditworthiness, leading them to seek diversification out of the dollar into other currencies. 4. Debasement Successive programs of quantitative easing by U.S. Federal Reserve, in essence money printing to purchase U.S. Treasury and mortgage-backed securities, have swollen the central bank's balance sheet, as shown in the chart provided in the original commentary, from $870 billion on August 1, 2007 to $7.8 trillion on April 28, 2021. Centuries, even millennia, of financial history have shown that such rapid rates of money creation foster and lead in time to the depreciation of the external value and the internal degradation of the purchasing power of the nation's currency. And 5. Dethroning Recent data from the International Monetary Fund indicate that foreign central banks are exhibiting a decreased willingness to hold the same high share in earlier years of U.S. dollars as part of their foreign exchange reserves. As of December 2020, at 59.0% of central banks, 11.87 trillion in aggregate global monetary reserves, the dollar's share had decreased to its lower percentage level in a quarter century, since 1995 as shown in the chart provided in the original commentary. Other currencies competing with the dollar for central banks' reserves holding include, as of December 2020, the euro, 21.2% of global reserves, Japanese yen, 6.0%, British pound sterling, 4.7%, Chinese renminbi, 2.3%, Canadian dollar, 2.1%, Australian dollar, 1.8%, Swiss franc, 0.2%, and other currencies, 2.7%. 
Additional putative competition with a dollar has been building, at the present time partly psychologically questioning the dollar's status as the world's chief reserve currency, in the form of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, which resemble cryptocurrencies such as Ethereum and Bitcoin in several limited respects, yet act differently in significant ways, including more widespread use, more stable values, significant regulatory oversight, and issuance by central government's monetary authorities, the immediate and longer-term competition from currencies of allies and rivals of the United States, as well as CBDCs, is likely to continue, potentially representing downward pressure on the foreign exchange worth of the greenback. Now let's discuss valuation. Even as much recent investment commentary has pointed out that the historically high valuations of U.S. equities, it is also worth noting the record high valuations of high-yield securities, sometimes colloquially referred to as junk bonds. Securities are rated as high-yield if they carry a middle rating by Moody's, Fitch, and S&P at BA1, double B+, double B+, or below. As depicted in the accompanying chart, the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Corporate High Yield OAS Option Adjusted Spread Bond Index, which was created in 1986 with history backfilled to July 1, 1983, shows that investors' quest for current income in the fixed income realm has produced high prices in the U.S. dollar-denominated high-yield fixed-rate corporate bond market, and thus very narrow interest rate spreads compared to U.S. Treasury securities. With a less-than-favorable stance toward high-yield bonds, we counsel vigilance, discipline, and diversification for those investors considering investment in this asset class, preferring exposure only in intermediate-term liquid securities at the upper end of the high-yield quality spectrum. Originally developed by Goldman Sachs in 1991 and with ownership transferred in 2007 to Standard & Poor's, the S&P GSCI Index, formerly the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, serves as a benchmark for investment in the commodity markets and as a measure of commodity performance over time. The broad range of constituent commodities, energy products, 61.7%, agricultural products, 15.9%, industrial metals, 10.7%, livestock products, 7.2%, and precious metals, 4.5%, tends to reduce the effect of highly idiosyncratic events in any one market while responding in the aggregate to global GDP growth trends. Partly due to the effects of robust monetary stimulus on financial asset prices, the 2010-2020 timeframe has led to considerable relative outperformance of U.S. equities compared to the prices of energy products and other commodities. As shown in the chart provided in the original commentary, the ratio of the S&P GSCI index to the S&P 500 index has recently reached a 50-year low. Our positive view of value-oriented sectors, including, but not limited, to energy-related products and industrial metals reflects, one, multi-year oversold conditions in the above-referenced commodities relative to U.S. equity prices and, two, our forecast of an improving global economic growth outlook for the remainder of 2021 and 2022. Now let's discuss equities perspective. Used for several centuries from 1409 through 1963, the papal instruction ceremonies for popes in the Roman Catholic faith, the Latin phrase sic transit gloria mundi, thus passes worldly glory, serves as a reminder of the transitory nature of life and earthly honors, perhaps also worth pondering 
when observing lists of the world's largest companies ranked by equity market capitalization. In the chart provided in the original commentary, year-end 1989 saw 13 of the world's largest market capitalization enterprises as being Japanese, of which seven were financial firms, with six of the largest being American. Just over three decades later, at the end of the first quarter 2021, 13 of the world's largest market capitalization companies were American, of which eight had a distinctly technological, social media, or financial character, with five of the largest based in Asia. While difficult and perhaps incautious to draw hard and fast investment conclusions from such rankings, it is nevertheless revealing and perchance slightly disquieting to note that not a single one of the 1989 largest equity market capitalization companies or its successors appears on the 2021 register. The widely quoted German proverb, Bäume wachs nicht in den Himmel, trees don't grow to the sky, suggests that natural limits to growth exist, particularly as companies and entire industries achieve high valuations based on expectations that their growth will continue at the same pace that produce such apparently long-lasting lofty assessments. For some time, our view has been that successful asset allocation and investment strategy requires analysis laced with discipline, vigor blended with restraint, flexibility, mixed with conviction, and broad perspective leavened with healthy skepticism. Margin debt represents the amount of money borrowed by an investor using securities pledged as collateral. Federal Reserve Regulation T currently sets required initial margin at a minimum of 50%, with a typical maintenance margin requirement set at 25% or above. This means that investors' equity must be above the ratio in margin accounts to prevent a margin call, which involves the forced sale of securities to repay the margin loan. Because they can magnify gains, even though they exacerbate losses on the downside, rising levels of margin debt often historically accompany upwardly trending market prices and represent a measure of investor bullishness and optimism. Legendary long-term investor Warren Buffett has pointed out that excessive use of margin borrowing can rattle the investor's mind and lead to poor decisions, since mandated liquidations during downdrafts can cause the investor to miss out on meaningful future gains. As can be seen in the chart provided in the original commentary, rapid growth in margin debt has tended to precede significant stock market sell-offs, and in the 2000-2002 dot-com decline, and again in the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, GFC, and even though, as shown in the lower accompanying chart provided in the original commentary, aggregate margin debt as a percentage of total U.S. equity market capitalization is currently below the high levels of the two earlier upheavals. We nevertheless want to reiterate our themes of cash, caution, and conservation as we view the rapid rise and level of margin borrowing as warning signs of elevated investor ardor and flourishing exuberance. Meaningful historical perspective on the pattern and magnitude of U.S. equity total returns, which include dividends as well as price changes, can be gleaned from examining the chart provided in the original commentary. Covering 196 years of U.S. financial history from 1825 through 2020, U.S. equity prices have generated positive returns in 140 years, 71% of the time, and have experienced negative returns in 56 years, 29% of the time. Ten of the years have witnessed total returns greater than positive 40%, two of which occurred in the 1950s, 1954, and 1958. 
two of which took place in the 1930s, 1933 and 1935, and two of which transpired in the 1860s, 1862 and 1863, whereas only three of the years have suffered declines more severe than negative 40%, two of which occurred in the 1930s, 1931, and 1937. Worth noting is the positive bias of the recently experienced 2010-2020 interval, which featured a preponderance of positive total returns, 10 of 11 years, and only one negative year, 2018. By contrast, the 1930-1940 timeframe included six negative return years, and interestingly enough, the 1830-1840 era witnessed five negative return years. So far, the historical record for the United States has delivered 84 more positive equity return years than negative equity return years, or stated another way, two and a half times more gain years than loss years. While past performance is never a guarantee of future results, we recommend that investors have and flexibly adhere to a carefully developed plan taking account of their current and projected wealth, income and tax profile, time horizon, investment temperament, financial objectives, and the long-term disposition of the portfolio. Now let's discuss portfolio positioning. Portfolio Positioning Strategies In the current economic expansion and fluctuating yields environment, we believe that careful thought, planning, and attention needs to be devoted to the investor's most appropriate forms and vehicles for implementing the fundamental elements of asset allocation and investment strategy, which include 1. Diversification, which means having sustainably low and negatively correlated investment exposures that truly counterbalance price movements in other assets, particularly during times of great financial stress and or market volatility. 2. Rebalancing, which encompasses using concepts of reversion to the mean to trim exposures to assets that have grown to represent too large a portion of the overall portfolio while at the same time adding exposure to high-quality assets that have fallen out of investor favor and suffered significant, though deemed not permanent, price declines versus intrinsic value. 3. Risk management, which involves recognizing when markets become consumed by meme securities, momentum plays, story stocks, and information overload, a situation that has pertained in recent months to more than a few companies in the technology space, and understanding the degree of liquidity, the true pricing realism, and the various roles of short-term liquid securities, real assets, financial assets, and alternative assets in decades-long or longer regimes of inflation, stagflation, deflation, monetary disruptions, and currency resets. 4. Reinvestment, which encompasses knowing when to emphasize and trade off income versus capital growth, all the while keeping in mind the critical importance of discipline, equanimity, patience, tax awareness, and longevity in capturing and compounding dividend, coupon, and other income flows. And 5. Asset protection and husbandry, which encompasses considerations of income and capital gains taxation at the state, local, federal, and possibly international level, estate planning, relevant insurance design and structuring, cybersecurity shielding, portfolio monitoring and reporting, administrative costs, forms, frequency, and means of access and custody. Now let's discuss portfolio positioning principles. We continue to counsel a considered and considerable exposure to equities, with judicious shifts between style sectors, geographies, and where appropriate from a cost, timing, tax, liquidity, and size standpoint, public versus private markets. Expressed below are a number of themes that we believe should be taken into consideration over the next few years in selecting asset categories, asset classes, asset managers, sectors, companies, and security types. 
One, paying attention to the value of money. Taking advantage of, rather than being taken advantage of by, the likelihood of money printing. Internal and external currency debasement. Government debt monetization and the modern monetary theory approach that to some degree have been pursued by the authorities. Within shifting money and credit cycles, to service America's massive, explicit government and corporate indebtedness and the enormous, implicit obligations of pension and healthcare promises. Two, concentrating on all weather sectors and companies, seeking investments with balance and flexibility that are able to thrive regardless of which political persuasion informs the thinking and policies of the White House and or Congress, evolving environmental, social, and governance priorities and values, wealth distribution initiatives and public health conditions, and wider socioeconomic trends. 3. Distinguishing between temporary and permanent change, focusing on the commercial and financial implications of new social and political power structures, alliances, and geopolitical relationships, new energy sources and resources, new trade patterns, new on- and offshoring channels, new work-from-home and work-from-anywhere employment modalities, and new business models, pathways, digitalizations, and forms of person-to-person and business-to-business work, leisure, learning, and wellness. 4. Taking advantage of demographic tailwinds. Through U.S. and select non-U.S. companies gaining exposure to and meeting the rising needs, aspirations, and spending power of the rapidly expanding global middle class, especially in Asia. 5. Comprehending and verifying past success. Emphasizing companies and sectors that have demonstrated successful track records and past experience in capital allocation, balance sheet strength, risk management, sustainably defendable business models, and the ability to generate and sustain high multi-year returns on equity derived from revenue growth and favorable margin preservation rather than through overly high levels of leverage meaningfully above the company's and sector's weighted average cost of capital, and six, identifying innovative and disruptive technology hegemons, focusing on technology enablers, disruptors, and dominators in biotechnology, public health, artificial intelligence, data analytics, machine learning, 5G cellular network technology, the Internet of Things, infrastructure, robotics, quantum computing, battery inventions, alternative energy, electric vehicles, and cybersecurity, while not least also taking account of the environmental, social, and governance ESG characteristics of companies in these and other fields. Now let's discuss portfolio positioning tactics. 1. Keeping things in perspective. Many of the overarching themes and conditions that influence our intermediate and long-term asset allocation and investment strategy emphasize the need to recognize the concepts and implementation methods in intended to achieve safety, balance, diversification, and liquidity are likely to face evolving taxation regimes, social priorities, geopolitical power relationships, price level changes, demographic trends, indebtedness levels, technological penetration and usage, and importantly, the definition role, degree of physicality, embodiment, and value of money itself. 2. Flexibility versus conviction in formulating investment thinking. In seeking to determine when to adhere to and when to lean against prevailing consensus views, sometimes pejoratively referred to as groupthink, it is important to critically question the soundness and durability of the reasoning and assumptions underlying a given investment framework and positioning at any point in time. While it may not make sense to hold out of consensus views just for the sake of doing so, often expressed as don't fight the tape, 
At other times, especially at major cyclical or secular turning points, at a major asset top, when reality is finally found to fall short of prevailing overly optimistic expectations, or a major asset bottom, when reality is shown to be worth considerably more than prevailing overly pessimistic expectations, the rewards of implementing a contrarian stance can be quite meaningful. 3. Enhancing and Preserving While we confess to a continuing degree of unease over the spreading investor exuberance and the popularity of stocks and sectors considered to be forever holdings, our short-term inclination at this juncture is to take note of the Federal Reserve's support of financial asset prices while taking advantage of such strength to continue the course of upgrading positions, offloading lower-quality, higher-risk assets and with timing and price discipline, adding to attractively priced, higher-quality assets on equity market pullbacks. 4. Equity Emphases and De-Emphases Particularly in the current conditions of historically low U.S. Treasury interest rates, and given the likely focus areas of government spending initiatives, to us it appears likely that cash-generating, financially stable companies with robust growth prospects, which are able to operate and thrive in the digital sphere as they continue to enhance their business models, deserve to retain some degree of valuation premium. Within equities, one, we recommend continuing to gradually shift emphasis from growth sectors, companies, and managers towards the inclusion of select value sectors, companies, and managers. Two, we continue to counsel adding small and mid-cap companies or investment managers specializing in and with good track records in this space. To our primary yet gradually lessening emphasis on large capitalization enterprises, and three, for the time being, while we continue to prefer a tactical overweighting to U.S. domestic equities, with any pullbacks currently viewed as an opportunity to judiciously add equities, particularly those sectors in small and mid-cap companies likely to benefit from an economic recovery. Year-to-date through April 30th, the Russell 2000 index was positive 14.8%, outperforming the S&P 500 index up positive 11.3%. While we also espouse building higher allocations to our positions in emerging market equities and developed international markets, such as Japan, with the Nikkei 2025 index year-to-date through April 30th up positive 5.0% in local currency terms. 5. Focus on strength and quality. Our long-term equity portfolio weightings continue to emphasize asset managers, sectors, and specific companies that can benefit from the major sustained trends of the 2020 decade, including 1. Incremental growth in a wide range of economic circumstances. 2. A focus on economic repair, digitalization, e-commerce, personal wellness, safety, domesticity, home improvement, infrastructure spending, and consumer demand. And 3. Advantageous capture of benefits from onshoring, supply chain redesign, and deglobalization as important drivers of capital spending and disruptive innovation. At the company level in equities, we emphasize identifying and building long-term exposure to firms possessing fortress-like, cash-rich balance sheets, limited debt, consistency, and durability of positive free cash flow generation, dividend strength, and competitive business models with sustainable competitive advantages, high barriers to entry, low threat of substitute products, and power vis-a-vis supplier and or customers that, over a long time frame, can generate high returns on equity through revenue growth and enduring profit margins rather than through overly high levels of leverage. 6. Balancing Growth in Value Sectors Through Tuesday, May 6th, 
The Russell 1000 Growth Index, including companies in sectors such as technology, healthcare, and communication services, had, according to the Wall Street Journal, returned positive 5.7%, while the Russell 1000 Value Index, including companies in sectors such as financial, real estate, energy, utility, and industrial businesses, had, according to the Wall Street Journal, returned positive 17.2%. Year-to-date, this 11.5 percentage point value minus growth returns differential appears to argue for continuing the process of prudent reallocation from selected growth sectors, companies, and managers into selected value sectors, companies, and managers. As this process continues, it is worth keeping in mind that true value investing represents identifying assets that are trading for less than they are actually worth, not assets that are merely inexpensive. Many superficially inexpensive assets may very well be inexpensive for a reason and can very well remain so or deteriorate further. 7. Fixed Income Securities Bond prices persist at elevated price levels with ultra-low yields across the maturity spectrum. Even though yields have risen somewhat since year in 2020, with, according to Bloomberg in mid-December, an astounding total of $18 trillion in global negative yielding sovereign and some corporate debt outstanding. We affirm our preference for issuers at the high-quality end of the rating spectrum, both in taxable investment grade and high-yield bonds, and in tax-exempt bonds where we continue to see some pockets of value on a taxable equivalent basis. We see fixed income securities as continuing to be subject to price risk due to our expectation of further increases in yield levels as 2021 progresses. And thus we prefer maturities and durations along the short to intermediate portion of the yield curve spectrum. 8. U.S. Dollar Outlook After declining negative 9.9% in 2017, appreciating positive 4.4% in 2018, marginally gaining positive 0.4% in 2019, and declining negative 3.4% in 2020, the DXY U.S. Dollar Index measured versus a basket of six major currencies, their euro, Japanese yen, Swedish krona, British pound, Canadian dollar, and Swiss franc had, as of the market close on May 5th, appreciated positive 1.3% year-to-date in 2021. While we believe the appreciation of the U.S. dollar over the first trimester of 2021 may continue in the near term, we believe the U.S. dollar may later begin to trace a gradual path of weakness as, due primarily to the U.S. trade deficit cycle, as well as the Federal Reserve's stated preference for lower yields in the United States for the next 12 months or even longer, the U.S. dollar's relative income-generating advantage may begin to play a lesser role in the currency's path as this year unfolds and global investors become increasingly aware of the magnitude of the U.S. current accounts payments deficit and, particularly, the massive fiscal 2020 and 2021 federal government budget deficits. 9. Alternative Investments in Real Assets In alternative investments, we continue our multi-quarter focus that has for some time emphasized exposure to 1. Commodities and real asset sectors of the economy including industrial metals, agriculture, and materials. 2. Gold and or gold mining ETFs shares, particularly the miners with reserves in stable geographic locations, capital discipline, and cash flow growth. As of January 21st, according to Spra Asset Management, the NYSE ARCA Gold Miners Index traded at an enterprise value to earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization ratio of 7.81 times, compared to the equal-weighted S&P 500's ratio of 16.76 times, the widest spread in 10 years. 
Three, high-quality, master-limited partnerships with strong business models and sustainable dividend-paying capacity. Four, select investments in private credit and private real estate. Five, and opportunistic strategies that are positioned to selectively derive meaningful value from the dislocations created by the coronavirus pandemic and the economic and profits recovery that we expect in the year ahead. This concludes our May Market Commentary by David M. Darst. David is Americana Partners Chief Investment Officer. We are available to answer questions you may have regarding the topics discussed. If you'd like a full copy of the report, please visit our website at www.americanapartners.com and request to join our distribution list. Thank you for listening. This is Melissa Giles, Portfolio Manager with Americana Partners. Stay invested.